I just think you could look at it and say, looked at multifamily, understand it. I don't want to invest in it. That's actually a good thing to realize as well. But if you're going to invest in it, you need to get educated at least somewhat enough to understand whether you're making a good decision or not. I also wouldn't be forced into a deal if you're working with somebody and they're pressuring you to invest and you just get that high pressure sales type thing. I personally don't deal with people like that. It drives me crazy. If they're like, this is the, you know, the best deal ever, you're missing out, I'd pass, you know, listen to your gut. That was Mark Kenny, co-founder of Fink Multifamily. Stay tuned for an interesting conversation. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right. Welcome, partners. Again, this is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, we've got another exciting episode. I'm joined by Mark Kinney. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Jake. How you doing? I am doing great. Thank you for being here. So Mark is the co-founder of Think Multifamily. So I imagine we'll be getting into a multifamily discussion here, but Mark, I'll kick it over to you. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on, on who you are and how you got to Think Multi? Yeah, sure. And I appreciate you having me on today, Jake. I grew up in Michigan and Dallas now, one of seven kids. I have an identical twin brother and growing up, both my brother and I were like, hey, we want to do something different than we're seeing everyone else doing because nobody in our family or extended family were entrepreneurs or anything. We went to Michigan State and we both went for accounting and started looking at doing real estate when we were seniors in college. We bought our first property when we were 22 in our hometown and started buying smaller properties, but we both also had corporate jobs. We were both CPAs, did IT consulting, had IT business. And my IT business was doing pretty well, at least I thought it was from a financial standpoint, but horrible from a life balance. I would work minimum 90 hours a week, sleep like three hours a night. My phone would go off 24 hours a day, caused a lot of issues just because I wasn't able to spend time with my wife and things like that. So my wife and I were buying smaller properties in 2013. She's like, yeah, we need to start looking at doing something different. And I'm like, okay, in my spare time, I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. But anyways, we joined up together. So co-founder, because my wife, Tamil is not just someone that supports me, but the business wouldn't be anywhere near where it is without her and her skill set. And we started first as a passive investor, actually in 2013 in a syndication with a friend. And then we started doing our own. We've done value-wise about over a billion dollars of transactions, over 90 deals, and we're in 12 states. And invest, you know, as a lead, if you want to say syndicator, but also invest passively in real estate and some other investments as well. So I really, I love the story because I'm also an accountant by trade. Oh, you um, are? Okay. Yeah, that's where it, this all started. I'm super jealous though, that you started investing right out of school. Like if I, you know, the advice, if you could go back in time and tell yeah. yourself something, I would have probably said, buy a house while you're in college, run it out to your friends, right. sell it when you leave. And then like, let that be the seed for everything. But 
I guess the question for you is how did you get started in real estate, especially if I'd love to hear You that. know, I always kind of wonder, I always have these discussions with people in my mind as well, like nature versus, you know, nurture and why do, you, do I like certain things and not like other things? For whatever reason, both my brother and I, and fortunately my wife, Tamil, really liked real estate. I don't know why. And uh, we were like, everyone needs a place to live. It seems to make sense. We really didn't know anyone doing it at all. And I don't know how we gravitated to it, to be frank, other than we're like, everyone needs a place to live. We were both like, like you probably very analytical because we're both CPAs and things like that, but we could touch it. We could feel it, go buy it and look at it versus stocks. It's a roller coaster. There's no logic in my opinion whatsoever. And events that happen impact things that shouldn't impact, but real estate, we thought, Hey, you know what? We think we could probably start buying some small properties and eventually we were like, hey, we'll end up buying these properties and retire like when we're 40, right? And frankly, I don't want to, I'm past 40, obviously, but I don't want to actually retire, if you want to say. But we also kind of concluded that, you know what, we have to buy a lot of properties in order to, on our own, in order to replace income because we were both, you know, doing pretty decent income wise, doing IT and things like that. But it wasn't like we saw a commercial or someone in our family was doing it. It was one of those things we just thought, hey, we can touch it, feel it makes sense. Uh, we can get a loan for it, which I'm not sure how we got a loan, but we did. I don't know you know, how they gave us a loan, but they did. And uh, we're like, we can actually put a little bit down and leverage the rest. And it just made sense to us. I, mean, I think that that's such a cool story, right? Because if you can get in early, especially before things get out of control, I mean, this is like what I want for my kids more than anything else right. is get in early before you like run your, you know, your salary. Because I mean, everybody knows, like most people probably know this, you feel your salary, right? Whatever you make, you start to like live into that lifestyle. Oh, yeah. So it's like, man, like I think about when I was in college, I lived off of $700 a month and that had to pay for like my housing. I was like, man, if I could have started like that oh, yeah. and replaced 700 bucks, I could have done it no problem. But you know, like as you get more into your career and like you, I was a CPA, I was working, you know, for somebody else and now, like in retrospect, like, oh, I could have done so much better if I'd started early. So I'm yeah. super jealous. You get nervous. Like you get nervous because my IT business, I was making, you know, pretty good money. I was like, I don't think I'm going to replace my income. And for, and, you know, I didn't really have to replace it hundred percent in order to have a pretty good, you know, lifestyle and things like that. But your point's well taken about the seller because I have a nephew who's super smart, loves real estate and eager and all those things and kind of wanted to start doing real estate. He's a police officer. And literally just got promoted like two weeks ago to detective sergeant or whatever. And now he's like, oh, it's good and bad, you know, because now he's kind of making more money and more control and it's harder to get out of it. It is, it is so hard, especially the further on you get, right? And then you have oh, yeah. family and kids and like it all stacks up. But let's talk about the transition to multifamily, you know, probably similar to maybe a stress point. And I'm inferring here based on your story. You know, my wife and I, very similar, invested in real estate and we grew a portfolio and we had properties in multiple states and like we were growing. And it, I mean, one got to the point like with residential, so we had like singles and doubles, that it was just like we couldn't take anymore, like physically, emotionally, like we, we couldn't take anymore because it was just going to be too much, right? Like financial pressure, like you name it, like when you start having all these singles and doubles. And I didn't learn that lesson until later right? There's probably a better way, but I'd love to hear your transition into multifamily. The exact same story. We were buying mostly two to four units and doing everything ourselves, plus working tons of hours, doing evictions and trying to be handyman when we weren't really that handy. 
And it became, I'm surprised actually we continued through it because it was not a very good experience. My biggest thing other than the time, which was important, was I also just got tapped out financially. So my wife and I, every two or three years could buy another at the time, got married pretty young too. And then I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna have to wait till what? I'm like 150 to have enough properties to do it. And we got burned out on that. And then when our friend was doing a syndication and kind of, you know, picked it, we picked it up pretty quickly because we were already in the, in the financial aspect of it and kind of things like that. I'm like, this kind of makes a lot of sense because he's using a third party management company that does all the day to day for him. Mm -hmm. Other people, he's getting money from other people to buy bigger deals. And that's how, you know, our kind of light bulb went off in our head. And my wife, you know, fortunately really pushed me because I'm like, I don't have time for this, but we ended up, you know, making the time somehow. And we almost gave up after a year because it took us a year to get our first deal, but we didn't, we kept through it and we're pers persistent and patient and things like that. But I can tell you it was not a very good experience because I lived in Michigan at the time. My brother and I would work till 10, 11 o'clock at night, come home, shovel snow, you name it. And again, I'm not sure how we continued to do it because it wasn't great. But I'm like, once we learned going larger and really less headaches with the larger properties, it became, you know, really a blessing to us. Yeah. I can vividly recount, you know, one o'clock in the morning putting down baseboards and trying to lay tile and try and get, cause we did some flips too, and trying to get all of those things done around a full-time job. You know, th this is part of the message that I want to get out there for the limited partners or aspiring limited partners is that, yes, you can go out and do onesie twosies and you can make decent money. And especially when the market was rising, like flipping was great. It's been great for a while, right. but it's not going to persist forever. But like you do get to a point where like the bank looks at you and be like, I'm, we're not giving you any more money, right? Like we're just not going to do it. Like you've just become too risky and you feel it and it's stressful. And I was doing this full time, you know, probably I left my job, I was doing it full time. And I, we hit that point where the bank was like, that's it. Like you've maxed out the number of government loans that they'll give you. So right. like you're done. So I had to go out and start raising private money. And it was just like, yeah, we're doing like one or two deals a year because it was like every single one of them was a slog. So I, Plus know. the recourse, you know, when we were buying smaller properties, I'm sure oh, yeah. with you, we're going to the bank, we had recourse debt, which means you do have personal liability, something happens. Now we have, you know, half a billion dollars in loans or whatever, and it's all non-recourse. So we don't have personal liability. Doesn't mean you can't go off and do whatever you want. You can't be stealing and unethical and lying, things like that. Then you're going to have recourse, but it's not a recourse loan. So if something happened to that particular property, for whatever reason, we own like 60 then it, the bank looks at that one property. They can't come after me personally. They can't come after my other properties. So that's a major difference, especially when I was, I started out when I was 22, I was kind of freaked out about having that personal liability because something happened. We miss rents, you know, people paying us, which happened more often than it should. My brother and I didn't have a lot of extra money. We're just starting out to be able to cover that. So that was a big issue for me. Yeah. And then, I mean, the, the fear is real. Like we I mean, could snowball very fast. It's like, if this one goes empty or right. they're late. And then it's like, we got to, you start putting all the pieces together. Like, oh man, this is, I've lived it. So if you're out there and I have, we haven't convinced you yet that maybe you should consider maybe just skipping doing the onesie twosies and jump right into, you know, a limited partnership. Hopefully that's why you're here. But I guess let's, let's talk about that because I think too, it's, it is not super simple, right? Like you can't just jump in blindfolded and get into a limited partnership and hope for the best. What are some things that you've seen that aspiring limited partners or people that are even experienced limited partners should be thinking about, especially now in this point in time where 
you know, the market's really unpredictable. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for one, just to your point, if you're a limited partner, there are different ways a syndicator or lead, whatever you want to refer to them as, can, can structure a deal. You can't just get into every deal. In some deals, you have to be accredited investor. In other deals, you might not. But that just is a starting point. The other thing I would say, how long has the person been doing it? Are they doing it full time? And if you're going to invest in anything, it really doesn't matter what it is, you want to at least have some base knowledge about some rules of thumb. You know, just because something doesn't fit a rule of thumb doesn't mean it's wrong, but you want some really good rules of thumb as a limited partner. You can actually somewhat look at and say, okay, Jake has a deal, but you know, I see the income growth is 10% year over year. Is that realistic? Well, probably not. Or Jake has a deal and he has a the cap rate he's assuming going to go down over time, which, you know, for all practical purposes, we don't think it's going to happen. Could, but it's not conservative enough. So I just think you could look at it and say, I looked at multifamily, understand it. I don't want to invest in it. That's actually a good thing to realize as well. But if you're going to invest in it, you need to get educated at least somewhat enough to understand where you're making a good decision or not. I also wouldn't be forced into a deal if you're working with somebody and they're pressuring you to invest and you just get that high pressure sales type thing. I personally don't deal with people like that. It drives me crazy. If they're like, this is the, you know, the best deal ever, you're missing out, I'd pass, you know, listen to your gut. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason is a general statement. Women seem to have a little bit better intuition about people than guys. It just, I don't know, it just seems to be the case. You know, have your wife speak to somebody if you're married or you have, you know, a woman that can speak to the lead or whoever it might be and just get a gut check. Because I can tell you people are like, they're trying to invest with somebody and it's a pretty small world. And they ask me, well, do you know anything about this particular person? And I know a lot about different people. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> you don't want to just jump in blindly with somebody unless you know some background about them, what they've done. Have they have any issues? Have they ever had problems on a property? If they're like, no, I've never had a problem on any property, then I probably would not invest with them, frankly. There's some really great points in there. I mean, I love the fact that I think as an entrepreneur, let's take a step back, right? As an entrepreneur, somebody's trying to grow a business, there's a there's a tendency to want to know that like you got it, right? And that's the what you want to project to everybody. And you know, like VC guys and all these guys, they see it all the time. They've got the experience and they know that like a real investor knows that there's issues. As a matter of fact, like as an investor, you want to look at somebody and be like, how did you deal with the issues? Right. right. Because they come up. And if there's no good like story, it's like maybe you just haven't been in business long enough or like you're not telling me something. No, it's true because, you know, you don't even realize sometimes what you learn as you go through the process, right? And you look back and, you know, we've done, I mentioned, you know, over 90 deals, if you know, review tons of contract. And I can see, because we have a mentoring program too, but, you know, that aside, I can see people that are new that would get stuck and they wouldn't even know that they can't foresee what's going to happen in the future. I'm not saying I can predict what's going to happen, but I can tell you what will happen the way some of these contracts are written initially. If you're not smart enough to be able to pick up on some of these business terms about, okay, it's going to go back. If you get in some sort of litigation, everything goes back to the contract. So don't be like, oh, the broker told me we could get more time if we needed it, even though it's not in the contract. No, that doesn't work. So I just can't tell you how many things you run across on the buy side, the sales side, that I can see people, you know, getting caught or even, you know, without getting all the details, I mean, you're accounting too, but just accrual based accounting versus cash-based accounting. And you're not talking like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars difference. You're talking hundreds of thousands, in some cases, 
several million dollar difference in value, just the way the actual owner provides the financials to you. And if you're not smart enough to ask for the right financials or do your due diligence to validate, you know, bank statements and things like that, we get pushed back all the time. That's a non-negotiable for us. We will not move forward on any deal if we can't, you know, prove out the revenue, but a lot of people do. They'll move forward anyways, and they're going to get caught. Yeah, that's being an accountant. I mean, you really kind of hit some interesting points. So accrual base, there's all kinds of revenue rules out there that start to make the financial statements completely different from what's actually happening. Right. And like somewhere out there, the regulators are like trying to say, hey, we're trying to make put everything on the same playing field because there's all these different games you can play with accounting. And therefore, like what happens is you can actually look at financial statements that look amazing, but there's no cash. Right. There's no, no way to pay the bills. There's going to be they're going to be in default on all their covenants. You know, I'm not trying to scare you here. Right. As you listen to this, like there are some just basic blocking and tackling things that you need to be thinking about. Mark, you're bringing up some really great points. And then this road has been trod, right? There are some oh, great yeah. players out there that do this over and over again. There's no reason to jump into something that doesn't feel right. That's right. And just to put in perspective, you know, not to belabor the point about, you know, the accounting aspect, but a, a $25,000 difference doesn't sound like that much to somebody that doesn't understand. But if you're dealing with cap rates, which we don't have to, you know, anything five, you know, five units and above, but let's just say at a five cap, which is very conservative, a $25,000 misstatement on their financials is $500,000 you're overpaying for the, which that's the way it works. It's not made up. That's what you're overpaying for the property by $500,000 for a $25,000 mistake. Yeah. That's real, right? And I it's think real. And uh, we see it all the time. You know, we, unfortunately people don't want to share things or they're not, you know, I went through stuff initially and wish I would have learned these you know, things about transactions. I'm like, why wouldn't anyone teach us this stuff? And we share things we've had issues with, and that's how you learn is actually, you know, like you mentioned, as far as how do you prevent those things from happening? Well, we want to be able to find, you know, prevent mistakes, obviously, but if we have a mistake, find it quickly and fix it quicker than we ever could before, because we've seen a lot of different things. And I look back, you know, years ago, I'm like, man, we could have really gotten in trouble, you know, if we didn't, you know, based on what we know now, I'm like, I'm, I'm glad we didn't, but we could have gotten in trouble. Yeah. I mean, let's put that in perspective, right? You know, at a 10 cap, everything is multiplied by 10. That just happens to work out that way. So at five cap, everything's multiplied by 20, right? It, that's the way it works. You're actually dividing, which has this like massive multiplication. The deals that we're looking at in today's market are somewhere between two and three. So these things can be significant out right. there and these like small changes. And those are the things that you really need to be thinking about when you're looking at a deal. Cause your point was, are you expecting the cap rate to go down? Are you expecting the cap rate to go, you know, at least to stay the same, like we're at historically low cap rates, which means right. that everything is so sensitive, right? Everything has like a 30 multiple on it. Everything that you're doing right now has a 30 multiple on it. So if the cap rates go to four, they go to five, all of a sudden it's a big value change. And those, you know, like just having a little education and that's why we're having this conversation is going to help so much when you're looking at a deal, because like, it's those little nuances right there that you'd be like, oh, cool, like cap rate, boom, move right on past it. Like, what are the rents? What are all these things? If somebody makes a small, you know, error on the cap rate favorably to the investment, like it's going to look terrible down the road as the market changes. And we're at a point where the cap rates are historically low. Yeah. Nothing surprises me anymore. Could they keep going down? Like, I right. guess. But like, that can't be the expectation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Now the benefit is, you know, if you've owned properties, we've sold and selling, you know, probably sell about a dozen properties this year. 
And the benefit is, you know, that same multiple works on the reverse side. So if you have your net operating income going up by a dollar, it's, you know, 20 plus dollars of value. And that's how you frankly can make some pretty significant life-changing money. You can, even as a limited partner and getting returns, you know, a refinance or a supplemental loan or a sale. We're not saying we're going to try to time the market, but we, you know, we sold about probably 10 deals last year, bought 24 and we'll probably sell another 10 deals this year. We're already at over 20 deals this year. I'm not sure how, but we are, but you know, it's what kind of crazy thing, but it's not because, you know, can't sit here and say, oh, we're all geniuses. We're so smart. And, you know, we have to get some credit to the market, but it all comes down to taking action though, too. Could you be leaving a little bit of money on the table? I don't know. Some of these deals we've owned for a year and then you're doubling your money in a year. Does it make sense to sell? I think so. You no, know, I think you have a disproportionate amount of equity capture you're going to have in, you know, 12 to 24 months. And you might keep another three years and get another 25%. I'm making that number up. But if you can do that, hit your five, six year projection in, you know, 18, 24 months, you probably owe it to the investor to sell it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like, it's funny because like when you think about cap rates, you think about a long-term hold, it makes you nervous. Right. But if you think about the value that you can create with a super low cap rate, so let's just say you buy a property, it's, we'll do five, right? Because that's an easy number to work with. Like every dollar in income that you, net operating income that you increase on that property is going up by 20, right? Like, yeah, you can do some magic, right? Oh, yeah. With, property that maybe has just been, you know, it's a little, just needs a little bit of love. Rents could go up. You could add some revenue here and there. Like you can do some real good things with low cap rates. But if you know, the investment thesis is a five to seven year hold, like I would hope to see somebody saying, we expect them to go from three to maybe four. Right. <laughs> right. No, for sure. That's right. I mean, the other benefit too, just is the, you know, the tax benefits that we've seen and, you know, that's different for everybody, but you know, for us, it's been significant with, you know, the depreciation with bonus appreciation and cost segregation and those type of things. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter term wise. It's just the limited partners, at least when we do deals, will be allocated a pro rata share of their depreciation. Now, whether they take it or not, or can, it doesn't go away. So if they can't take it for whatever reason and they do a sale later on, they can offset the sale with that depreciation. And the whole goal is on paper is not to make any money. That's reality. And whole goal is not to pay any federal income taxes. Yeah. So I guess as we kind of wind down here, what excites you about multi? For me, it's, you know, I originally started it more for more reasons, you know, just because of family issues and not having time with family. And now it's also, you know, turned into a you know, pretty significant financial, you know, benefit, frankly, which has allowed us to get back, you know, frankly, I didn't, you know, when I was early on in my, my, you know, young and things like that, I never knew whether I'd want to give money away or anything, frankly, because, you know, we didn't grow up with much. So I'm like, I don't know. My wife always wanted to, I'm like, are you saying that we don't have any money to give away? And uh, so for me, you know, we're going to charity event tonight and things like that. So we're able to support some people in the missionary field that we know very closely nephew and some really good friends. So that has allowed me when people say money's not important they've never been without it and it takes money to make things happen so that's been a great thing for me the other thing is just seeing other people in our group that have been able to you know quit their two jobs or the spouse or both them and their spouse to be able to quit their two jobs in a relatively short period of time i don't know why i love it you don't have to be you don't have to love it to be an investor in it especially if you're a limited partner i think if you're going to syndicate things like that you're not you're, you're going to really want to like it a lot but as a limited partner I think it's proved that it's, you know, 
from an inflation standpoint, it's been very resistant. It did phenomenal during COVID. Cap rates went down, which means pricing went up. Pretty much everybody was wrong on that, what was going to happen. And it's continued to perform, you know, kind of over and over again. So, yeah, we're in a cycle, like you said. Well, you know, nobody knows. People guess all day long. They're wrong more times than they're right. But it's been, if you can be patient enough, you don't have to sell three, four, five years. You don't have to. Nothing forces you to do that. Cycles don't last. You know, we haven't had a cycle where the cycle is down for five years. You know, it doesn't exist. So just hold in there. Be patient as an investor. Get educated as an investor. And, you know, you can be an investor that's a pain in the butt too, frankly. And as strange as it sounds, people don't want you as an investor. I'd rather not take money. And a pain in the butt doesn't mean you're asking questions. That's totally fine. But if you don't understand concepts or you're like, you know, this is all guaranteed, you know, never can lose money, never do this. And you need to understand it's an investment. You need to go into it without that aspect of it. And again, get educated to ask some smart questions and you'll be, you know, you'll be attractive to a syndicator doing deals, putting them together. Mark, thank you. I usually end the show with gratitude, but you beat me to it. So thank you for sharing, but uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love it. I love your background because it parallels so nicely with mine. Sure. But thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.